can be suspended because of an emergency, then they're not sacred. Then they're not inviolable. Then they're basically temporary and they're not rights. They're permissions. Hello there, everyone. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. I've got a very exciting interview today. I have Majid Nawaz on the show. You may have seen him on Rogan recently. Very, very cool. We've been trying to make this interview happen for some time now, as Majid has a crazy backstory. From being imprisoned in Egypt to working on LBC, where he eventually got cancelled for questioning a lot of what the government was doing in response to COVID and mandates, Majid has a crazy story and he's so much to offer in an interview. So I asked him to come on the show and eventually we made it happen. We actually went down to London. We borrowed his studio to make this happen. So thanks, Majid, for that. I know you're going to enjoy this. If you have any questions about the show or anything else, and then feel free to get in touch. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Majid, good to see you. Finally. So, so um... It's uh, it's actually for, thank you by the way for coming down to see me. Um, I know I know that you've come all the way from Bedford. Yeah, have you ever is, been? Of course I've been. Yeah, yeah. I used to travel all over the country um, to try and recruit people. Pretty much most of the cities actually I used to go to. <laughs> I, I was I was um I was uh, seventeen years old after my expulsion from Newham College for murder. But I didn't kill anyone. It was my bodyguard that killed people, and then he ended up in jail, got life. But I was seventeen. I started recruiting people. Came to university. Whoa, 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 back up, back up. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't just. So I, I was uh, um. At Newham College in East Ham, you know East Ham? Yeah. Yeah, so I was um, basically recruiting people to his battalion of my group. In those days, right, so I'm 44 now, I think we're about the same age. 43, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I, I call it, I'm one year older than you, but basically, um, in those days, it was, a, it was, a, it was, you'll remember when, like, the anti-Nazi league, the A&L, like, the socialist workers had a little thing called the anti-Nazi league, and it was all, like, hip-hop and, and anti-racism versus, so in those days... Muslim political organization was brand new. It was the, We were the first generation that started organizing young Muslims on the streets because we were the first generation that were born and raised here. So when I left home at 16 and I went to Newham College and uh, basically, because I was in, in Hizbutahria, I was a, a recruiter for this group, um, I started organizing people in, in the East Ham campus in Newham College. And uh, eventually I stood for, for the student union. And my whole slate were activists that were serving with me in this group. So I stood as president and every single union office position was my activists. Uh, so we we basically started this huge campaign um, and we won. So we took over the student union. I was president and the women's officer, the whatever, you know, the finance, all of the positions were his battery activists, all calling for a caliphate, right? So we took over this college. And then, of course, there was trouble because uh, a lot of kids in the college weren't used to the fact that we start, suddenly became politically active. And there was some, <clears throat> there was some tensions. Uh, and this guy came, his, his, his name is Saeed Noor, a uh, huge guy. He turns up one day and I hear in the college that he's, uh, somebody's uh, looking for me. I went, way I was raised, if someone's looking for you, you go and find them. So I went and found this guy, huge guy. And I said, what do you want? And he said, I'm here to protect you. I said, what do you mean you're here to protect me? He goes, well, I heard from the scenes of the brothers that you're doing a good job in the college and I'm going to be your bodyguard. It came out of nowhere. So I was like, all right, then. You know, you're, you're a kid. You don't really think these things through. It was prestigious. Yeah, so I said, all right, then. And then there was trouble. Um, and this one kid called Ayatunde Obanobe, I'm, you know, bless his soul. I'm not trying to brag or anything because, you know, it's sad. A person died, and I always remember this because that's a human life, you know. But he, unfortunately, one day, he pulled two knives out and started trying to stab Said Noor, right? Because of result of these tensions. And, and I was standing right there, and I said to, I said to, um, Said Noor said to the guy, actually, he said, look, if you don't put your knives away, you're going to get into trouble. I'm going to have to kill you. This is literally what he said to him. And uh, Ayatunde wasn't listening. He had two of them, and he was slashing at Said Noor's leather jacket, and uh, he was making contact. So to be fair, and this is what I said to the police at the time, considering the circumstances, Said Noor was quite patient because he said to him, you need to stop that or I'm going to have to kill you. It's literally what he said to the guy. And the guy didn't stop. So then he pulled out his huge machete and just plunged it straight through his heart. And then a whole bunch of other people started hammering him in my head. And you know, the guy died. It was really sad. And I put this in my book, actually. Um, so we got expelled. So the, the college expelled a whole of the, the, the college expelled the president's student union, which is me and all my committee. All of us in one go got expelled. 
the police came and they found me in my parents' home in Essex and they said, we want to talk to you about the killing. So I said, all right, I've got nothing to hide. I mean, I was there. So I told him the story I'm telling you. I said, look, I said, in my amateur 16-year-old brain, I'm telling you, I think it was self-defense because he was being slashed at. Anyway, he, he went down for he went down for murder. I think he got life. The, the other kid, one of them with a hammer, and he was juvenile, so he didn't get life, but he got, you know, a long time. I think he got 10 years or something. And they all went down. That was probably London's first, Britain's first jihadi street murder. That was probably that. Wow. So we got kicked out. Then I went, my mum put her foot down. She got really upset, as you can imagine. Uh, and she said, you've got to go to this grammar school. And I said, I'm not going to grammar school. I went to State Comprehensive. I went to Cecil Jones. That school got shut down after I left it. A lot of my listeners are American. You probably want to explain what a grammar school is. Yeah, so the grammar schools are selective schools where you pass an exam at 11. And if you pass this exam at 11, you, everyone that passes that exam goes to this school for smart kids. Yeah? I didn't pass that exam, but I got quite good uh, GCSEs, which is the exam you do at 16. Yeah. I say quite good. I got 1A in art, and that was it. The rest were Bs and Cs and Ds. Um, but she thought I was just not trying hard enough. So she said, look, I've got, a, I don't know how this happened. She managed to organize an interview with Ed Master. And uh, she said, you've got to go in there and he's willing to meet you. So I thought, shit, I'm going to tell him about a murder. So, so I went into this. So I went in, right? And his name's Mr. Baker, right? So I'm there now. I've just been freshly expelled, right? Everyone in South End is like thinking, shit, who's this guy? There's a murderer. He's been expelled. He's back now. And I'm in this grammar school where I feel like I don't belong. Anyway, so I'm speaking to the headmaster, and he's like, why do you want to come to this school? And I'm like, well, you know, my mum said I have to. And he says, all right, well, you know, convince me what, what you're going to bring to the school. So I started talking to him, uh, and he let me in. He gave me an unconditional offer, so I ended up doing A-levels in this uh, grammar school. And, uh, and then that's when I was recruiting at Cambridge. But fast forward, this is a funny story. It has a funny ending. Fast forward uh, about, <clears throat> I'd say, seven, eight years ago. My economics teacher in that school, I, got a, I did a economics, uh, economics, politics, history. Well, my A-levels. I did economics A-level. Did you? Yeah. So my, I got an A for economics, right? So my economics teachers, the two of them, right? One became a magistrate, Mr. Moth, and Mr. Skelly became the headmaster after Mr. Baker. So Mr. Skelly's now headmaster and he's loving the work I'm doing. So he goes, he contacts me. He says, come back. I want you to speak to the whole school. He says, all right, I went back there. Mr. Baker is about to retire and he's in the audience. So I get up and I've got the entire school in front of me, right? The whole, not just my class, or the, you know, my A-levels, the whole damn school's there from the little 11-year-olds all the way up to the 18-year-olds doing their A-levels. And I'm giving this speech and I'm talking about this whole story. And he didn't know, until that day, Mr. Baker didn't know that when I came to him at 16, it was just after his expulsion for murder. So I tell the story and then I say, and poor Mr. Baker didn't even realise he let a kid into this school that got expelled for murder. His face went beetroot red. All the kids started laughing. Everyone was finding it hilarious, apart from Mr. Baker, who was like... But it was funny. And he, oh, he, he appreciated it in the end because he knew it ended well, you know? So tell me about this, this group, HT. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to try and pronounce it. Uh, it's Battalion. Yeah, I'm still yeah. not going to try. <laughs> um... How did you end up being part of it? What was it? Yeah. It's going to sound a bit violent, but you know, I, I grew up with... So this wasn't the first knife fight. That I, you know, we had a lot of trouble in, in South End. So uh, before I... By the time I was 15, I'd probably seen more people stabbed than you have in your entire life. Is that racial tension? Yeah, yeah, racial violence. Right. So combat 18. Yeah. Uh, so 18, uh, it stands for the initials of Adolf Hitler. The one is A, and the eight is H. And these were, these were, at the time, former, former British Army uh, who'd served in Northern Ireland, uh, some of whom, the bad apples of whom, decided to become Combat 18 on their, in their spare time. Now, in South End in Essex, we didn't, have the, we didn't have the proper geezers that were with them. We had their little young followers. And obviously, we were young, right? So I was 14, 15 years old. And uh, it would be, it would be your, your, just literally a walking target. I'd be walking down the street, and suddenly you just hear someone shout, Packy, and they jump out the back of a white van. It was always white vans in those days, and they'd have hammers and they'd have machetes, and they just literally hunt you for sport. And so we were, I mean, there's more friends I can remember. I mean, look, uh, Michael Giddings, Mo, we used to call him, half Kenyan uh, mixed friend of mine. He had, a, he had a hammer put to his head. He was whacked around the head with a hammer. Aaron got stabbed when I was 15. Aaron and we were in this big knife fight with Rowan and um, a mate of mine, and Aaron, a mate of mine, and these guys turned up, uh, started calling us 
because we were mixed with West Indians and, and me, right? So obviously all forms of racial insults. Aaron got stabbed on that day. It, it, was, it was multiple problems we had, by the end of which I started carrying a knife strapped to my back for self-defense and protection against hardcore, like, neo-Nazis with hammers and machetes. Now, at the same time, the Bosnia genocide was going on against Muslims in, um, in Bosnia. Um, Srebrenica, yeah. Yeah, the, the 3,000 men and boys that were massacred in the mass grave there. So you can imagine we were looking at this from the, from the domestic scene, looking at the fact that we were being targeted. And then abroad, you see Bosnian Muslims who are probably aware, white, with, yeah. you know, many of them blonde hair, blue eyes, but they were Muslim. So yeah. we thought, fucking hell, what chance do we have if that's going to happen? Two hours flight, by the way, yeah. from London, and the Olympics had just been hosted there. So I thought, hold on, that's civilization. Yeah, it's not like it was like some backwater, and suddenly that's happening. And I, I know that can happen here because I'm facing it. So that's what the, to answer your question began me, my journey to um, almost in a, in a sense of the cycle of violence to express myself and that anger through a reciprocal form of Muslim supremacism when faced with genocide and white supremacism and so i basically decided that it starts with you need to defend yourself it ends up with i'm better than you and that's where we ended up so we joined his batara joined at 16 years old um and the basic ethos, well, the goals of the group yeah. yeah the basic ethos is we wanted to establish a global caliphate this is so again for your uh, audience this is it's important to put this into context this is before al-qaeda this is before terrorism was associated with muslims at the time you remember this because you're my age. Terrorism was Irish. It was yeah. the IRA. Um, and if you're lucky, you'd hear something something about the left-wing terrorists. So the, so the when Israeli jet was hijacked by the Palestinians, there was a left-wing group. It wasn't a Muslim group, right? Mm-hmm. It was like these communists. Palestine used to... Yasser Arafat and all those guys were left-wingers. They were secular. And uh, the, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, these were all left-wing and communist groups. It only became Islamist. And by that term, I mean a desire to impose one version of Islam over society, as opposed and as distinct from Muslim, which is just a traditional religious Muslim. It only became Islamist um, as, as the Afghan war kicked off in the 80s and the, you know, with the CIA backing the Arab fighters yeah. and, and bin Laden in Afghanistan to defeat the Soviets. That's when the Islamist thing kicked off, right? It was CIA funded initially. Uh, but up until, and that took a while to reach the rest of the world, but so up until we came along, um, terrorism wasn't associated with Muslims. We had, if you think of it this way, we were more like uh, the Trotsky to the Stalin of Al-Qaeda, right? So we, we developed the intellectual ideas for the caliphate, popularized them among Muslims. And it's that um, it's that sentiment that Al-Qaeda then built on to say, right, okay, you guys want a caliphate, we're going to bring violence to try and bring that caliphate about. So we were just like the group that was saying, we've got to have a global caliphate. Our means of getting that would have been to infiltrate militaries, to recruit soldiers for military coups, which I also did, but that's another story. Yeah. How, how much structure was there to this group? Very structured. Uh, and, and how global was it? Because if you were, you're saying you're about 15, 16, yeah. that was about when I first remember having access to the internet, but it was very limited. It was lists on Yahoo, it was pre-Google. Right. So it wasn't like it is now. So, so you would have had very limited access, but we, so we were trained in using, that was our modern tool, right? That right. was our blockchain. That was our, right? So we, we use that in a way that today you see um, black marketeers using you know, cryptos, right? Mm. We were the ones that pioneered the use of the internet for communication purposes for subversive messaging. Um, so we were heavily reliant on, on the internet. The group was global. It had one leader under which pretty much every country you can fit, certainly every Muslim majority country had a chapter of our organization nationally and then into cities. Here in the UK, we packed 12,000 Muslims into Wembley Arena. For, for a caliphate conference, actually, in 1994, I think it was, uh, we had we put orange stickers all over the country. Some people remember them. It said Khilafah, which is the Arabic word for caliphate, coming soon to a country near you. And we whacked them all over the country. I remember whacking them on police cars and finding it really funny. But we packed 12,000 people into Wembley saying, that's just here in, into Wembley Arena, sorry, that's just here in the UK. They came from all over Europe. But the group was founded in, just to give you some sense of its history, it was founded in 1953 in Jerusalem. It's an old group. It's not as big as it used to be. Uh, a bit like, you know, 
people went from being whatever, socialist to, you know, anti-globalism protesters, whatever, but this group was massive in the 90s. So it was established by Palestinians? Yeah. Right. Yeah, so the founder, his name is Sheikh Taqid Nabhani, he's a Palestinian. Uh-huh. He founded it in Jerusalem. Wow. Yeah. And then your like role within the group, I mean, you know, Danny was telling me beforehand that you rose pretty quickly through the group. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up, uh, basically I set it up in, uh, I was the first British Pakistani member to go to Pakistan. I set it up in Pakistan. Um, I set up the Danish Pakistani chapter in Denmark. Um, I then went to Egypt and I revived the group in Egypt because it had been crushed after an attempted coup. So the assassins of the former president, um, the president of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, was assassinated in 1981. And the assassins were the jihadis who used to be members of my group. So what happened was uh, they did what I just described to you. They, they basically got impatient and said, right, we're now going to use uh, violence. And so there was a guy called Salim Rahal who was a, a member of my group who trained the guys that ended up assassinating uh, Anwar Sadat in Egypt in 1981 for, for attempting peace with Israel after the peace treaty. I ended up in prison with those guys, but that's another part of the story as well. But basically, when I went to Egypt, it was to revive that chapter because they wiped the group out after the after the failed um, coup attempt, mm. after the assassination. So I was then head of the Alexandria chapter in Egypt, re- attempting to revive the group there. That was the tough part because it was quite a dangerous gig. I was 21. Right. I got arrested at 24. That's all of that happened before I was 24. So I was quite young. And then when I got back from Egypt, uh, after the five-year sentence in prison, um, the uh, British chapter wanted to make me the leader here. Um, I was on their leadership committee and then um, they made me the offer. So one week before, they had told me that's what they wanted to do, but one week before, uh, one week after they told me that, I basically quit the group and that was at the age of um, 28. And is there any pressure when quitting a group? Because oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I um, interviewed somebody with regards to gangs and the process of leaving a gang is very difficult. You can, you yeah. can be killed for leaving a gang. Yeah. And it is like, yeah. is there like extreme pressure to come with leaving the group? Well, it's not so much so. You're not going to get killed by the group itself because the group is... Um, it's very specifically focused on military coups, not on terrorism. Uh-huh. The danger isn't that. The danger is you get ostracized. That's, mm-hmm. that's That comes part, of course. But the danger is not... Beyond the ostracization, the physical danger isn't just isn't in the leaving, which I think you can get away with and a lot of people have. The physical danger is if you start speaking out against the basic tenets of the ideology. Which you did. That's what I did. So that, that, that's what pisses off mainly the jihadi groups, you know. Um, of course, ISIS didn't exist by then. It's an interesting history. So everything we know, ISIS, Britain and Europe, was actually traced back to the, to the group I joined. Because the leader of the group that, when I joined it, his name's Omar Bakri Muhammad. Yeah, so actually, because you're, you're from Bedford, you yeah. know Luton, right? Yeah, of course. Very and well. Al-Mahajroon and their activities in Luton, Anjum Chaudhry and all those guys, that kicked off the, the same cycle of violence. That's why the EDL came about, yeah. right? It's the same cycle we're talking about. Tommy complains about seeing Muslims mistreating uh, soldiers in the streets saluting, and I say to him, yeah, and I grew up fighting neo-Nazis. And it's the same cycle of violence, Tommy, mate. We've got to get off that bandwagon, you know? His name's so, not Tommy, though, is it? No, nah, Stephen. <laughs> so, so oh, I know him anyways, right? So um, he, so that Luton thing, so what happened is Omar Bakri Muhammad was a leader of my group, yeah, and he left um, <clears throat> as that jihadi scene that I mentioned to you grew, yeah? So when I said that they built off the, the, the um, intellectual groundwork we built for a caliphate, the jihadis exploited that for violence, mm-hmm. quite literally. So the leader of my former group, Omar Bakri Muhammad, left and founded Omar Rune, and Anjum Chaudhry was his little acolyte in that group. I mean, Anjum Chaudhry, everyone thinks he's a big, scary monster. He was my lawyer in that murder case in Newham College. He was my lawyer, right? He, you know, he's, it's why I'm always, I make fun of him, because he knows who I am. He thinks he's, you know what I mean? But this guy, so he, he so Anjum, Omar Bakri got kicked out of the country, so Anjum had to become the leader. But Anjum was like, you know, you don't really take Anjum seriously, you know, for where, where I'm from, you know? So Anjum became the leader of Omar Rune, and then what happened is, uh, as the as the that com- sort of process of the violence used to exploit the ideas, the foundations that we laid, Anjum went down the path. Al Mahajrun, as you would probably be aware of, Al Mahajrun and Anjum's group is what became ISIS. 
in Britain, yeah? So the, so the tragic killing of drummer Lee Rigby yep. in Woolwich, where it was yep. an attempted beheading on the streets, that was Unjum's people. Right. Um, but they all they were all an offshoot of my group. And in fact, the founder of their group was the former leader of mine. But there was no violence when you were in the group? No, no, no. So apart from that Newham College yeah. incident, the, the group wasn't violent. Yeah, but that, that was yeah. a reaction. There was no yeah. established violence no, to, to, no. as a means to... The, the group, it just, so that's why the, the analogies with socialism work, right? So as I say, we, the group was the Trotsky to the, to the Stalin. It, the Stalin people came along in the end and started, you know, becoming violent, which is this Almar end, yeah? And then ISIS is what emerged from it. But our group, to this day, and there's still members of it, and, you know, I've criticised their ideology, but, I've, you know, you've got to be fair and honest about this, otherwise you're not taken seriously. And in that scene, you've got to be taken seriously. People want to know that you're not just making it up as you go along, because otherwise they're not going to listen to you, they're not going to leave the group and trust you, right? That group, to this day, is not a terrorist group, and that's why it's not banned in, in any uh, liberal democratic Western country across Europe. Every single European country, Britain, America, the group is still legal. It's in Australia, they're legal. They're in the Australian press, or I'm pointing at Danny because he's from there, or he lives there. uh, So they're active in Australia, and you'll see some of them in the press, but they're not banned because they're not a terrorist group. And even my imprisonment, we were adopted by Amnesty International as prisoners of conscience. It's important to make that point, yeah? What does that mean? Prisoners of conscience means, and by the way, Amnesty, it's a difficult thing to get from Amnesty, right? They were founded for that purpose, right? A prisoner of conscience means you've been imprisoned for your ideas, and that's it. So we were imprisoned for our revolutionary Islamist ideas, not because we committed any crime in Egypt. It was because we were recruiting to a group that didn't have a permit to operate in Egypt. And that was the, that was the alley. So the specific charge... First of all, it's important to remember that the Egyptian constitution was suspended after the assassination of Sadat in 1981. They suspended the constitution. Now, this is relevant to today's times because it was suspended using the excuse of an emergency, right? National emergency. It never got reinstated. From 1981 until I was arrested in 2002, one year after the 9-11 attacks, the constitution had been suspended all that time. There were people in prison for 24 years under the suspended constitution, under the emergency law, which was an extrajudicial process that put you through the state security courts. We weren't tried in civilian courts. We were civilians tried in military courts. What's that saying? There's nothing as permanent as that. Yeah, yeah. exactly, as a temporary emergency. So that constitution remained suspended. So we got picked up and we got put into what were called, uh, called in Arabic, Mahkamat Aminadola, which means uh, which means emergency state security courts. It is as ominous as it sounds. The prosecutor was sitting on the bench with the judge. The prosecutor was sitting on the bench with the judge and our defence was down there with us and we were in cages. Sounds a bit Guantanamo. We were held in cages, dude, right? So it was an emergency trial under exceptional circumstances with no rights and the charge was, quite literally, and that's why I'm going to quote to you for an Arabic, it's seared in my memory, the charge was, which means propagating by speech and writing for a non-legal organisation. That's what we got convicted for. I mean, so that's why Amnesty adopted us as prisoners of conscience. Their point was, you can't put someone in jail for their ideas, no matter how bad you think those ideas are. That's not an imprisonable offence. It's certainly not a torturable offence, and we were dragged through their torture dungeons. I mean, you know, they're electrocuting people on their teeth and genitalia in front of me because they don't like their ideas. So that's not fair, that's not right. So when people want to understand why terrorism emerged on the Muslim context, that prison I was held in, just imagine you torture a 17-year-old kid on his private pass in front of his dad. To force the dad to confess. Mm. Yeah, now you're a father. Mm. I mean, now there's only so much psychologically you're going to remain sane after that until you become insane and are prepared to do anything to react because you feel like your dignity has been you know, basically taken from you, right? So yeah. the prison we were in is where modern day terrorism began. Jeez. Right? We were in this prison called Mazratura prison. And uh, they were, they were, I mean, the levels of torture, I don't even want to describe for you because it's not nice for your audience, but basically that's, that prison, Mazaratura prison, is where the, the modern-day founder of modern-day jihadism, his name is Sayyid Qutb, if you look up his book, Milestones, it's like the, pretty much it's the original founding pillar of intellectual pillar for jihadism today. Ma'alim um, Fitriq is the name in Arabic of that book. All the jihadis and Islamists, they all know who I'm talking about. Sayyid Qutb was held in that prison, and he was tortured in that prison. 
And, and he was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, which until that point was a non-violent group, which was even more moderate than the one I joined. Yeah, They would stand for elections. Yeah, right. And he went from that to pretty much inspiring Ayman Zawari, who was just killed the other week as a leader of Al-Qaeda. He was held in that prison too, the prison I was in. It was that prison I was in that produced Ayman Zawari. It produced Sayyid Qudub. Because these guys, the Sadat's uh, killers that were... That, so by the time I went in, I was 24. They'd been in prison for 24 years. Right, I met them, the assassins of Sadat. They, all of them, had basically come through, basically, after Sayyid Qutb and his generation were tortured in those prisons, they founded the jihadi groups that these guys then went and, and joined and, and, and killed the president over, you know? So when did you turn your back on it all? Was it, was it in prison? Well, I, I studied a lot in prison. I debated everyone. I had communists in there, socialists. I had people accused of being Israeli agents, people accused of converting from Islam to Christianity, people accused of converting from Christianity to Islam. Everyone that, the joke, the running joke in Egyptian prison was, if you change your mind under Hosni Mubarak, the dictator, yeah. from anything to anything, the crime is changing your mind, he's going to throw you in prison. So we had, like, just imagine, like, forget university, we had the who's who of the history of Egyptians... Egypt's revolutionary scene, yeah? From jihadis on the one end, assassins of Sadat, all the way through to uh, the guy that got second place in a fixed election against Hosni Mubarak for a liberal party called Hezbollah Ghad. His name was Ayman Noor. And his crime was that he got second place and they threw him in prison because he actually won, right? <laughs> so so all of that. Yeah. So I spent, uh, we had this famous Egyptian-American sociologist professor, professor called uh, Saad al-Din Ibrahim, whose crime was he wrote an article saying that Hosni Mubarak shouldn't, he said this is not a mumlikiya, um, uh, which is the word he used, jumhuriya and so it was a combination of a republic and a monarchy. And in Arabic, he put that word together to say Hosni Mubarak should not make his son the next president. This is not a dynasty. And they put him in prison just for writing that article. And he's a famous American, uh, Egyptian-American sociology professor. Um, I mean, I, after jail, many years later, I, spoke, I shared a, a platform with him in America. Like, he's, he's an established, well-known commentator. But put him in prison. So he's in there with us. So all these people were in there with us. Was it, was it, te was it tense debates or was it like an intellectual environment? Yeah, it was, it was. No, it wasn't tense. Also, I mean, it could have been tense, but no one's going to, like, we're on the jihadi side, right? We're all in the cells together. We're, we're, we're you know, no one's going to, everyone's going to be polite to us. You know? yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it was good. We had a great, uh, really, really in-depth conversations. Uh, the founder of uh, Egypt's largest um, uh, terrorist group at the time, which is known as Gamal Islamiyah, they had the numbers. Their founder was in there with us, the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, he was Dr. Mohammed Badir, who's in jail again now, but he's a very old professor. He was in there with us. We had a, the who's who there. So I spent... Um, I was sentenced to five years. I spent four years because we got released after completing our sentence, but they were a bit late in releasing us. It was meant to be two-thirds of the sentence, whatever, three-quarters, I think. But I spent that time in there debating with all of them and because my mind was never satisfied. I kept, kept asking questions, but I didn't want to leave the group while in jail. That looks weak. It looks like you're doing it just to get out of prison. So I never did that. I got out, finished my sentence, came back. It's when they offered to make me the leader here. That's when I had to then make a decision. Do I want to carry on with this? I don't believe in it anymore. So that's when I left. What well, didn't you believe in, though? What was, the, yeah, had, what was changing your mind on... In terms of the group and their beliefs. All right, so I'm a Muslim. I'm very proud of my Muslimness, yeah? But I don't think I should force you to do that. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, when you're angry and you're 16, and everyone's forcing me, I mean, I, you know, as I say, describe for you, there's shit I haven't even gone into, right? But you want, if everyone's trying to make you something that you're not because they don't like you and they don't like what you look like, your 16-year-old says, well, I'm going to make you before you try and make me, yeah? So it was that kind of reaction. It's a cycle of violence. So in a sense, I grew up, you know what I mean? It's hard not to. When you're 24 and you're in prison with all these people and you've got to make a choice of like, all right, am I going to... I literally had to sit there in my... Because I was in solitary confinement for four months in that prison. So I, I had to sit there in that time. <clears throat> we had no lights, no toilets, no bed. I had to piss on the floor where I'm sleeping and, and then give me 15 minutes in the day and then wash it down with a bucket. So in that moment... After seeing the torture, there was a moment where I had to decide, am I going to get revenge? I'm going to be that father that's watched it. This is a true story, by the way, the 17-year-old kid torturing in front of his dad. Am I going to be that dad 
because they took, they ripped my son out of my arms at one. I had a boy, he's 21 now. And so I'm deprived of my son, I'm in prison, I'm angry. And I had to make a choice. Am I going to be, am I going to turn into a killer for revenge? or Because I'm, we weren't violent, you know. But I knew that they were trying to push us to that. Because that's the, that's the best way to destroy anything we're trying to do is make us violent and then caricature us. So I thought, well, you know what? No, I'm going to win this. I'm going to show you guys that actually you're the ones in the wrong. So I had to make a conscious decision to, um, to try and say to people there's a better way to do these things. You know? And the better way being? Well, first of all, uh, remove any hate, you know? That's got, it's got to start there because that's like it's that's Stephen Tommy that you referred to yeah it's Stephen Stephen uh, actually with that right so you can like he's got he's got perfectly legitimate reasons to be upset about the fact that my Al Mahajroom you know Muslim mm-hmm. Islamists were were spitting on returning British soldiers right yeah. he's got reasons that's not nice to do that right these these that's their job they're not they didn't make the decision to invade anywhere they're just in the army and they're told where to be deployed right. So you got to, at one point, you got to realize that, okay, you've got a reason to be upset, but then I've got a reason because I came before you, right? And we had a reason because of Combat 18. But then Combat 18, these soldiers served in Northern Ireland. They probably saw someone's head get blown off. Mm-hmm. So at one point, you got to stop and think, oh, how far back am I going to go? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think it starts with, forward. Yeah, exactly. It starts with purging the hate from yourself. And that's what I decided to do. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is, and Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger has recently announced the launch of their new Nano S+, Plus, and the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. The Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. And listen, I have been a customer of Ledger since early 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Now, if you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, it is BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against others and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is definitely the best Bitcoin casino out there. And if you want to find out more, please head over to BitCasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O.io. And remember, please gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without ever selling their Bitcoin. And with recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and they are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserve attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. But not only are Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference hosted by Swamp Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th, 2022 in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they are pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference along with Natalie Brunel and Stefan Devera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, and Preston Pish. 
Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to have the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. There's going to be a surfing simulator, and it's going to be loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They are bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin in to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation-state adoption and mining to lightning. You do not want to miss out on the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. It's going to be a badass event. I'm going to be there. I cannot wait to go. I cannot wait to see you all there. Now, Swan is offering a massive 20% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to PacificBitcoin.com and use the code PETA. That's P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com and use the code PETA. And so then you all... Agenda change in terms of what you wanted to do. Was it then to start educating people or trying to help others maybe escape the group, try and have more peaceful debates? So part of the problem is if I... So the way I am now talking to you about it so candidly, yeah? I've always... I mean, I've written a book with this all in there, mm. but the delivery, the candor and the lack of apology for it is, is what I can do now. At 28, when I left the group, it, you know, like... The problem is that you've got to remember Bush was still president, Blair was still prime minister, we were still occupying Iraq and Afghanistan, and the EDL was rising. Yeah? Now, in that environment, to tell you the story un unapologetically, as I just have, including the murder in Newham College, it's difficult for people to trust where I'm coming from yep. and think this guy's genuinely trying to do the right thing. So before the man who you see sitting in front of you now could have emerged, I had to earn the trust of everyone. And this is what I said to people like Tommy, like, you know, like, you could have done a lot better after leaving the EDL. You know, I helped him leave the EDL. Yeah. Um, you could have done a lot better if you, like me, spent a good period of a few years within... That circle, just challenging... The reason you said you left is you said it was getting taken over by neo-Nazis, right? So you could have done a lot better by challenging that racism in, in your circles the way I challenged Islamism in mine to show people that you're trying to make amends. So I did that for 10 years. I set up an organisation, the world's first, to challenge uh, extremism and terrorism from a Muslim community. So there was a Muslim voice challenging it, yeah? And it was those 10 years of work where working with governments, working we, we you know, people like um, myself and my brother, Osman Rajo, who works with me on Warrior Creed, one of our, one of our shows here, um, the Getter show is sponsored by Getter. He's a co-host in there. He's uh, one of London, one of Britain's first um, MMA fighters. He, he, he came up in, a, in the fist fight scene in the, in the pits. And now <laughs> he, he trains uh, professional fight teams, prize fighters is his team. And uh, see what we happened, he, he started, he joined my organization. We, he would go into prisons to speak to the highest level convicted terrorists for the purposes of, you know, help re rehabilitate them in society, provide mentorship. And meanwhile, I was doing the policy side of work. And uh, we did that, you know, long enough. And um, the point is that you've got to show people that you're serious when you say we want to end the violence. And that's what we did. You know, we, to this day, <clears throat> we've got like um, um, the show Warrior Creed, the very first episode. We got a message after the show from um, a New York Al-Qaeda convict um, who had traveled to Afghanistan to learn how to make bombs, who came back and it was a New York subway plot and he was trying to blow up the New York, New York subway, mm. got convicted. After the first show, Warrior Creed, he watched it and texted in. He's like, oh man, I love the show. Thanks, keep going. Here in the UK, we've got the guy that was the head of the Muslim terrorists in Belmarsh. He's one of ours. You know, so what we did is for 10 years, we started trying to pull this all back in. Yeah, And uh, we feel like now is the time that we've demonstrated for a lot of hard work that we're trying to do the right thing. And actually now is a time where with all of that track record, having trained governments across the world, having done a lot of interventions in prisons with the convicted terrorists, holding it down the way we did, now is the time to, to really try and combine everything we learned from my time in, in, in uh, his battalion and everything we learned through our work in counter-extremism to bring that all together now because it's a unique experience and it's a very, very interesting world. We're at a crossroads and the example of what's just happened to Salman Rushdie yeah. you know, is where we can bring all of that experience and put it into focused analysis but also try and hold people together because that's going to be used again to try and divide communities. Well, I want to ask you about that but just before we get into that because you talked about intelligence agencies um, 
you know, part of the framework of the state, which is something at the moment, especially in the world where I live, in the Bitcoin world, yeah. people are very distrusting of the state. Um, rightly so, by Yeah, right, rightly yeah. so. Um, but um, what do you feel is... Do you feel there is an important role for intelligence agencies, or do you believe these agencies should be broken down? And so, because it's, sorry, the reason I bring it up is because it seems to me like counterterrorism works super important. You know, we hear from the Met here about the plots they foiled. Some of them sound absolutely terrible if they succeeded, but at the same time, you hear about intelligence agencies also kind of fostering, you know. Uh, issues in foreign countries. So it's kind of like, where do you... Yeah, well, look, before I answer that, let me just say to you, you won't get, you won't find or speak to anyone that has done more on that front with them than us. Okay. Yeah. I've been to Downing Street more times than I can remember. I edited Cameron's speeches on extremism that actually edited them. I've met Cameron more times than I can remember. Met Blair, met Bush. Uh, I was banned from going to America initially and I went in, they wanted, to, they wanted me to testify in the Senate under <clears throat> Senator Lieberman's first committee on Homeland Security. Uh, back in 2000, uh, what was it? Uh, 2006, I think it was. And uh, so they called me in, but I, was, I couldn't go in. I was banned. And so that I was the first Islamist ever to testify in the Senate um, on extremism. So they got me what's called a parole visa because I was blacklisted because of my prison. They got me a parole visa, which is what you give mafia bosses to bring them in to testify. Um, it's like a temporary visa, hence the name parole visa. I wasn't on parole, but that's the way they got me in. And they had snipers in the hotels across me and I was under 24-7 armed security. Um, and but I testified in the Senate's first committee on extremism under Senator Lieberman, right? Homeland Security's department, uh, Secretary Chertoff was in charge then, met him, trained the whole of Homeland Security. I've trained the FBI, I've trained New York police, I've trained uh, British government across the sector, all of them. We were the first ones to train all of them. Police, you know, civil servants, all of them, foreign office. We did the training across the board, right? So, and they all know that. And they all know me on a first names basis. No, no one can say that I haven't tried, haven't got the pedigree to say that I fought extremism, right? And the reason I set it up like that is because these agencies are doing more harm than they are doing good. And I'll tell you that. And I'm the one that trained all of them in this, yeah? They are, caught, they, basically the problem is, so you mentioned the foreign element. But malicious or incompetent? Both. So their leaders are malicious. And, and the people that are serving, they're like the troops. So just think of the army. You know, the soldiers that went to Afghanistan and Iraq, especially Iraq, yeah? I mean, they didn't know there's no WMD. They get deployed. And it's their, not, not their job to know. But, uh, but, uh, but the idiots that knew, right, and made that decision, and Dr. Kelly gets killed, and he, did, he gets killed. I mean, they call it suicide, yeah? Well, come on, after Epstein, you really believe that? So basically, you've got the leaders. So you look at the US now, and it's a classic example, that Trump's FBI raid, right? And the whole thing... And, and I can say this because, look, people will say, oh, imagine you're defending Trump. I say, shut up. I wanted to destroy your entire system, right? And then if, any, if anyone, Trump had, a, I'm married to an American, raised Catholic, white American girl from Tennessee. I remember when Trump was going on about his Muslim ban. And they'll say, oh, no, it wasn't about Muslim ban. It was about six countries ban. All right, but he campaigned using the word Muslim, Muslim ban, yeah. right? That's the word he put in his campaign speeches. So don't tell me I can't say he campaigned for a Muslim ban when if you read his speeches, that's the word he used. Despite that, and that's why I'm saying it in this way, because despite that, I can see when a process has been politicized. And the FBI raiding a former president's house. When you know Hunter Biden, now the New York Times admitted it, like many years too late, that that laptop is legitimate. You know there are crimes on that laptop that, yes, Hunter Biden isn't president, but they implicate the father. And the least you can say, if you're going to be charitable and give the benefit of the doubt, it's compromise on the father. That's being charitable, right? That's being charitable. But actually, it looks like there's crimes that the father's involved in and there's eyewitnesses. Bob Alunsky was Hunter Biden's um, business partner, and he's on record saying that the big guy's the Hunter, big guy, yeah. is the president, and I met him. He's on record. You've got witnesses now. So you're telling me you're not going to, you haven't even touched, touched Hunter Biden, right? He's free, and you're raiding Trump's house. So, you know, you don't need to be pro or anti Trump to see bullshit, right? And the point is. What are you saying, though, that both should be investigated? What I'm saying is the politicization of the counter-extremism industry is to your question, right? Yeah. So when the, when the Homeland Security has put out this, this uh, policy now that, that the people that protested on Jan 6 
are domestic extremists and could be domestic terrorists. Now, this is the politicization of the extremism agenda. What I mean by that is that could be trespass. It could be a criminal offense. I mean, whatever happened on Jan 6, it, it could be criminal, it could be trespass, it could be violent. But terrorism is something specific. Mm -hmm. And if you if you politicize industries like this, you destroy the whole thing. It's like, if you disagree with me in this podcast now, say, imagine, I'm not so sure I like what you're saying here, yeah? And I say, well, that makes because you're a racist. That's, first of all, that's not fair on you. But second of all, it makes a mockery of what real racism is. And then yeah. anyone that actually faces racism is never going to be taken seriously anymore. Well, but, you know, in following you, this is what you always say. Yeah. Language is important. Absolutely. The words we use yeah. are important. Yeah. So, so, so Trump voters, even Jan 6 protesters, might have committed criminal offences, just like those people here when they smashed. Remember when they smashed the um, Department for Education? Yeah. Right? The anti-student... Um, yeah, yeah. That's not terrorism, dude. Call it violence, call yeah. it trespass, call it criminal damage. Don't fucking call it terrorism because now you're making a mockery. People put their lives down. People, you know, as I said, I said this recently on a, on, um, a different podcast. I've been to, I toured 27 cities in Pakistan speaking out against terrorism. When Malala Yousafzai was shot in the head, I organized public protests in Pakistan with her face on placards saying, we will not surrender, right? I went to Quetta, which is the Taliban headquarters in Balochistan, in Pakistan, went to the heart of their city and organized a huge public talk against terrorism. I went to North Nigeria, right, where Boko Haram's from. I went to Bayera University and organized about 2,000 students speaking against terrorism with Boko Haram people in the audience calling me an apostate. So people put, I was wearing a flat jacket. That's all I had. That's not going to protect you from a bomb, right? People put their lives on the line to fight this stuff. And then because of your domestic, little, small-minded political agenda, you're going to now weaponize this, this work and use it against your political opponents. And I believe that our institutions have become politicized and weaponized across the board. China did this with the Uyghurs. Mm -hmm. So China, when it rounded up the Uyghurs, said that they're all terrorists. Yep. And that's why I can no longer sustain the work I was doing. There, there, was, a, there was a terrorist element within the Uyghur group, because the stabbings they had in the Uyghur region. Just like Tommy says, there is an extremist element within yeah. Muslim communities. But it's not the Uyghur, it's the, it's the uh, separatists that you need, you need to Think about separate this. Any critique you might have of the EDL is the same with the Chinese regime. Well, it would be like uh, back in the Troubles in Ireland saying all the Irish exactly. are representative of the IRA. Yeah, so when they round up, you've seen those videos and they're rounding them up in mass concentration camps. Yes. Oh, they're terrorists. Fuck, you know, no, that's the problem, yeah. right? So, so China did it, and the way China did it is what's interesting, because this brings us to tech and your, mm. your, your audience is a tech audience, right? So the way China did it is interesting. Hick, vision, cameras, yeah? Huawei and AI and facial recognition technology. So what they did, and you can check this all out, it's all reported it's in the news, yeah? Is you can train your, your AI to recognize specific ethnic features. The Uyghurs are a Turkic people, they don't harm Chinese. So whereas the outsider may not be expert in detecting the difference, I can tell you, I can tell a difference just by looking at him, 99% of the time, I can tell you if he's Bangladeshi, Indian, or Pakistani, and if he's Pakistani, I can tell you if he's from North Pakistan or South Pakistan, just by looking at him. Yeah, but that's because I'm not an outsider to that, right? So, so there is a difference in terms of features and and body between Han Chinese and Turkic Uyghur people, which is why where they're from is called East Turkestan, yeah. occupied Xinjiang, right? They train their cameras to detect Uyghur features, and they used all of the fact they got all these cameras everywhere, they got a social credit system in place. Mm -hmm. They imagine bringing black, literally Black Mirror. Imagine bringing the might and the power of your technocratic state to pick on a community. That's what they did using the extremism agenda in China. And so when I did my five-day hunger strike to try and raise attention to that, we had a, uh, it was a silent hunger strike for five days to get 100,000 signatures on a parliamentary petition because in the UK that forces a debate in parliament. They have to debate it if you get 100,000 signatures on that specific parliamentary.gov website. So to get to the 100,000, I, I basically did this hunger strike and it's to draw attention to this. That, I think it's three, two years ago now, that was for me the beginning of me deciding I had to get out of this extremism uh, industry because I realized that what they were doing was using everything I tried to build. They weaponized it. Weaponized it. And, right. and I knew that it's not just China because I knew, and you'll remember this, because remember two years ago, people were, didn't know about the Uyghur genocide and everyone was about to roll out Huawei in Britain. Yep. And, and the Metropolitan Police still uses Hick Vision cameras. 
the very cameras, by the way, that the Times reported two weeks ago, you can look it up, that has been sending data. So Met, the Met Police are using these cameras and the cameras are sending data to China, to servers in China. What's going on there? The same companies that are using facial recognition technology to target an ethnic minority community, those cameras, that company, are being used by the Metropolitan Police and the data is going back to the same people. So you just think that obviously they don't have good intent, you know? They're mm. already complicit in a genocide. So at the time, two years ago, when I was on that hunger strike, I realised that it's not that I can't trust an individual policeman that I trained. It's the institution. The, the system mm. is... It, it's. The problem is, and this is a problem with systems everywhere, which is why your audience will understand this, all systems skew towards power. They skew towards centralization. It's the, it's the nature of a system. It's like saying all men have a... Again, this is a, by way of analogy, but it's going to make sense. Look, a, a, a man and a woman's sexual drive, right? So a man is quicker to arouse and quicker to climax. And a woman takes longer to arouse and longer to climax. That's just a biological difference that, that you know, that is inherent within us. So, so no matter what you do, that's going to be the case, right? It's just, it's a quality of the product. So a system skews towards centralization because it exists to centralize. That's why it's there, right? So it will always find a self-perpetuating logic to further centralize because it was founded on that principle, yeah? Which is why the US Constitution exists, to keep the separation of powers. The founding fathers understood this. Mm -hmm. So the, what I realize is it doesn't matter. This could be a lovely policeman that's got the best of intentions right up until, I mean, the head of MI6. I know him. You know, we, we've had drinks together, sat there, had a chat with him, John Soares. He, he came and visited me in prison. But the, the very last head of MI6, he was ambassador to Egypt at the time, yeah? I mean, I know all these guys. The mayor of London visited me in prison, so he can't, right? So it's not that they're evil people. They all know me on a first names basis, you know? The problem is that a system cannot help but skew towards centralization. And it will use any excuse it can to do so. So it's about using existing agendas and almost the, the human species does this naturally it seeks for justification to, to achieve an ends and that justification if it exists in the rhetoric that's already out there such as we need to do x y and z to stop extremism it will appropriate that for the purposes of centralization and that's when i realized that you've got a problem in china with this extremism agenda being used for a genocide but we are all tied into China for our tech at the time we were, right? We were about to roll out Huawei. It was before the genocide was acknowledged by our government and by the American State Department. It is now, thankfully. But we were reliant entirely on their tech infrastructure and were going to become even more so because of 5G. My, um, my friend Mark Moss uh, talks about this a lot. Yeah. And he says, uh, he looks at different cycles. He looks at tech cycles. What are the three cycles then? It's tech, financial, and cultural. Yeah. And he said, you tend to go in these group cycles. Yeah. And one's like a, a, a like a 40-year cycle, one's an 80-year cycle, one's like a 250-year cycle. And he said, they're all peak, They're all heading now to hit their cycle peak right now. He says, we're at peak centralization. Yeah. And what's happening is we're overcorrecting to the point whereby you know, the governments and the, the things that governments are doing now are things we, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have thought they would do. Yeah. Like locking down Absolutely. entire societies yeah. and, and such. Uh, and what he talks about is that, that when it overcorrects, it will recorrect, and the recorrection is the the rise of decentralization. Absolutely. Whether it's Bitcoin yeah. or uh, the use of cryptography, yeah. you know, all these things are now that is the revolution that's coming behind this, where people have kind of like we've had enough of this. Yeah. That's right, and and that's why I left. I called it. I was like, it, it, the problem is, if you think about it, if that lockdown and people like uh, Andrew Neil again, I've discussed with him many times. Nice guy in person, but you don't, you, you cannot let him get away with the fact he wrote that column that says, "Is it time to punish the unvaccinated in the middle of lockdown?" right? Put it in the Daily Mail, yeah? Now, you lock down a whole society and you say, I'm going to only let... But I'm double-jabbed, right? But for me, it's about choice. When I made that decision to say, I'm going to stop the hate, what, what that means is sticking up for people that are that are deemed the other. That's what it means, instead of hating on them, 
right? And that means hard, hard decisions when sometimes when a whole society wants to pick on them, you've got to stand by people that are marginalised and are being demonised. Doesn't matter who it is. To be fair to the audience, yeah. when the first lockdown happened, I, I agreed with it. I thought it was a good idea. I yeah. mean, I was following the news of China and Italy. And Have I you changed your mind? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I supported it at the start. I mean, yeah. I changed my mind during it because yeah. it went on for months. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do have the benefit of knowing that COVID wasn't as serious as we first saw. Yeah. I still think it's serious. You know, people have died and people have got sick. But I think the the uh, the cure... was worse than the disease. Yeah, it was worse yeah, than the yeah. disease now. And I understand that now and, and I regret it. And yeah. I also once shared that there was an article once that was... Um, it was now a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Yeah. And, you know, I shared that on Twitter. I, I said those words. Yeah. And, 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 and that was the time where, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that, like, being sat here with you now is just a series of coincidences and yeah. lack of fortune. I didn't set out to be a broadcaster yeah, anyway. Yeah. I set up a podcast as a hobby five years ago and suddenly people like it. But yeah. with that has come this sense of responsibility. Of course. Like, in the things I say and where they reverberate, but also the people I talk to and the things they say. I yeah. take a deep responsibility with it. And you know, now I'm a, lot, I'm a lot more considered about the things I say because of that. Yeah. And it's a learning me. curve, man. It's a learning yeah. curve. And to be honest, a lot of people are going to, if they hear that history you've just mentioned, because there's a lot of us that were against it from day dot. Yeah. But even I'm outflanked, right? There's, there's people that say, Magic, why did you even get jabbed in the first place? You're always going to be outflanked by a purer person. So that's not a good way to go. Mm. Because and then I say to them, I had to tell someone off the other day because he was like, well, you're double jabbed, you're a sellout. And I said, well, dude, you get dragged through a torture dungeon and then get injected in prison against your will and then understand why I was trying to show everyone I'm not troublemaking anymore and I'll go and get, are you telling me to get a job? I'll go and get a job but you can't force people. That was my line, right? You can't talk to me about, so, but the problem is you, if you go down that line, oh, someone's always going to try and out-compete you. The best thing to do is as long as you're not fucking controlled opposition, right? Trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes and now pretend that you're against it and then wait for the next thing like climate lockdowns, oh, I'm suddenly for it again. People need to forgive people that made a mistake mm. and say they have the evidence now and they're adjusting their position. That's how we all learn. We're all on a journey, you know? And as long as we can have those conversations, that's the way forward. But the key thing is we must never do this again. We must never decide that it's okay to lock an entire society. As I said to Rogan on his podcast, like, what? give me one of your kidneys. I need a kidney. You've got two. I mean, literally, that's the logic, mm. right? Now, you might think, yeah, but imagine you're young and healthy too. Okay, but that's the point because if you get to a point where you're going to triage and prioritize people, and you're doing it through the social credit system, which is what China does and what we were trying to implement with a vaccine passport. Because if you remember, it was linking health data to criminal record data, mm -hmm. right? That was on the yeah. damn apps, yeah? So if I get to a point where I've got more points than you, well, I deserve your kidney when I need one because I've got 100 points and you've got 10, so I'm more worthy and deemed higher uh, earner, more intelligent, maybe more handsome, right? I've got, take your, I've got to take your kidney, you know? We'll see, we'll see about so that. what I said to Rogan, he was yeah. like, well, and that's the problem is that this idea that that what we used to believe were inviolable sacred rights can be suspended because of an emergency, then they're not sacred. Then they're not inviolable. Then they're basically temporary and they're not rights. They're permissions. Well, the problem is sometimes as you try and discuss or explain these situations or these ideas is that you can get classic conspiracy theorists. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and that's something I've, I've called people in the past. Yeah. But, but among certain groups of uh, friends or uh, my parents' friends, they think I'm a conspiracy theorist. Cause right. and, I, and I'm light compared to some of the people in the cohorts I mix with. But you get classed as such. But actually, that's a, that's a really frustrating pejorative. It's, so I had it when I was trying to explain CBDCs on Facebook. Yeah. To everyone, I was saying, yeah. yeah, the government's going to try and sell this. Yeah. They're going to tell us Bitcoin. They're going to tell you the benefits of having it. And it's crypto. Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's control. It's yeah. complete control of your money. Yeah. And one of my friend's mums blocked me on Facebook. She said, I'm fed up with your conspiracy nonsense. It's yeah. like, Jesus, how do I get to the point where you can present this and you can see the facts in front of you? Right, so so just like I said, I can get outflanked on the purity thing and, oh, Pete, you, you were defending this stuff and then someone goes, yeah, but imagine, you're double jab, so you have to have humility. You can also get outflanked on the pejoratives. Yeah. Like, so so it all, it's all karma, man. So if one day you call someone a conspiracy theorist, even in private, it's come back at you. Yeah. It's just karma, you know? And that's where all of us have to learn that these cycles, they can go either way, yeah? That all we can do is have integrity, and try and be honest, 
and try and learn from experience, which requires humility. And that's it. Then the last thing, consistency. So you're now on something. You're saying, listen, I'm trying to warn people about CBDCs, yeah? Mm -hmm. You're going to get called names. Because why? Not because people don't understand. It's because there are people out there who benefit from CBDs coming in, like the Bank of England, who are richer than you, more powerful than you, who are going to fund people to call you a conspiracy theorist. That's actually what's going to happen. Not some ignorant uh, Facebook, not your friend's mother, but some ignorant person on Facebook thinks that you're thick when actually they're thick. No. That's 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 not the problem. That's actually... That that lady, and again, I don't mean she's thick, right? I'm not talking about her, but the lady that, that called you that name, she's not the problem. She can't influence the world. She's not going to bring or stop CBDCs. The problem that you're going to face is the people that want to bring it in mm-hmm. are more powerful than all of us combined. They're wealthier than all of us combined. They have the power, and they're going to bring it... They're going to try and bring it in regardless. And the way you do that, if you're a corporate is you basically, as every corporate does, you fund PR firms to make your case. And part of that is negative campaigning, just like in politics. So that's what's really going on. Is that they'll pay people on social media with bots to call anyone that challenges CBDCs. The AI will pick it up, and a whole bunch of bots will start calling you a conspiracy theorist. We see it. I mean, we were, look, as a Bitcoin, you see it already. Yeah. Uh, you know, we know the honesty of what Bitcoin is, what it stands for, why people use it. We understand that uh, there are you know, people in certain jurisdictions in the world who absolutely rely on Bitcoin, either as an activist yeah. or as maybe even a woman who wants to have access to financial services. There is legitimate human rights uses for Bitcoin. All we ever see from uh, some of the more leading press is negative article after negative article, misleading right. and mistruths. And we've, we've uh, recently... It's all propaganda. Said, well, it's yeah, all it is. And we started to see, we started to realise that who's funding these articles. It's, it's been exposed and it's, it's frustrating. It's, yeah. it's really frustrating. And I guess it, I want to tie this back to the LBC because you talked about like you know, when people, they've got things wrong, they've realised they should be honest, they should have integrity, apologise. Like, I can imagine there's people at the LBC who who think they owe you an apology but maybe haven't given it or can't give it yeah. but know they're wrong now. Of course. Do you want to, can you tell the LBC story? Because yeah, they're that's going to get, get sued. Yeah, what are being sued? So you know, because you had a, your show was big. Yeah, man, it was. Uh, so I'm very proud of these two shows I've got now. I mean, that's Radical is sponsored by Odyssey, mm-hmm. and I've got Warrior Creed sponsored by Get, and I've got my Substack newsletter, Radical Dispatch, which is doing really well. In fact, I mean, it's 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 a, it's the highest earner at the moment. The Substack, right. you know. Um, well, that's a good thing when you got cancelled. Yeah, like that. that's right. People people supported me, but and I'm very grateful to people, and that's the love. You know, they're showing the love back. Mm. But the LBC lot, and the thing is, what really winds me up, and this is you're going to understand, because I think, I suspect that politically you're going to sympathise with what I'm about to say. You can't, you can't make a fucking show about being all pro-minority voices and all like, let's platform marginalised voices and let's make sure that we're being anti-racist and all that bullshit that they speak, yeah? When you recognise that ethnic minorities in particular have been experimented on medically throughout history. So the African-Americans and the Tuskegee experiment is a famous example, but more specifically with vaccines, and more intimately, the CIA in Pakistan, my second home country, my parents' country of birth, you know, I've got cousins and uncles and aunties that still live there. Like, this is very real, yeah? The CIA conducted a fake hepatitis B vaccine programme on children in their hunt for bin Laden. When we know that as a recent example of national securitization of the health industry to achieve national security objectives, we know that it's a very real and intimate example of what happened. And let's not forget, in a field I was very, very instrumental in, in setting up, which was the counter extremism industry for governments. I mean, I pretty much, you know, we founded that through Quilliam, yeah? And you're going you're gonna to manipulate all of that good work and the health sector to deceive children and take their DNA. And then who knows where that data's being stored, right? And weaponize it in your hunt for, on, on your counterterrorism objectives. You're going to weaponize the health data, which, by the way, is what Hitler did, right? Mm. Weaponized health for national security, his version of national security, yeah? The principle is what matters. He did that in principle, and his CIA did it in principle. They weaponized health in pursuit of a national security objective with children as the innocent victims. So now your LBC and the parent company Global, and you make a big deal about being conscious about ethnic minority tragedies, 
right? And the histories and marginalized voices. And I'm there saying, right, here's this story about the CIA. This is reported by Vox, by the way. Again, I mentioned it on Rogan as well. And, and he put up the slide. Yeah, we saw it. We yeah, saw your receipts. Right, so it's there, right? So it's not like it, we're not making this up. Mm. Now, I'm in, a, I'm in a company that claims it exists to allow people like me to speak in that way without being censored, right? It claims that, yeah, for too long, ethnic minority voices haven't been heard about their experience. So now I'm on this national primetime show on the UK's largest commercial radio group, getting half a million listeners on a weekend lunchtime when people should be having their Sunday roast or drinking their Bloody Marys on a Saturday, and they're listening to this show. And you're telling me that I'm safe. I can speak my mind because you're here for me, yeah? And then that's I how s- you built your audience. That's right. And that's what they kept telling me. That That's what they told me. That, yeah, man, we're going to support you. You know, we understand this is specific. And and I, so I'm on air and I'm saying, listen, first of all, I've been jabbed against my will in prison. And I know that you guys, CIA, you know, security industry, have done this to children in Pakistan. You've weaponized the health sector for your national security objectives. So I'm not buying this. You can't tell me that you're going to force people to be jabbed or they get sacked, which is the no jab, no job policy, and that I can't ask questions, basically. That's it. That's what it comes down to. Because we've been abused in the past. How do I know you're not abusing this again? Why should I trust you when that's what you did? Trust the system. Go and tell that to those Pakistani kids that had their DNA taken. Like the, the Taliban started blowing up vaccine centers after that. That's what it does. In reality, physically, that's what it does. You ended up, that's why the Taliban blow up vaccine sent, um, deployment in Pakistan and Afghanistan. That's why they do it, because that got exposed. The CIA has, by the way, admitted doing it and has apologized. So, you, so imagine, right, you do that, and then you come into the same people and say, trust us. Fuck off. I mean, I don't trust you. You have to justify yourself. Who do you think you are? You have to justify why I have to believe you. Otherwise, fuck off, because I know what we did in Iraq. There are no weapons of mass destruction there. So, a lot of oil. Exactly. So, so that, that is the stance I took. And by the way, why, while being double jab, this show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm still only buying, right? We're hodlers. The market's looking good. We're not sellers. And I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips. And I set up a DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. And new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have Cake Wallet. Now, Cake Wallet is a non-custodial wallet, which means it protects both my security and privacy because it doesn't share my important information with unnecessary third parties. With Cake Wallet, not only can I hold Bitcoin, but I can easily pay privately with Monero. Cake Wallet is accelerating Bitcoin adoption since they now support buying gift cards instantly with Bitcoin, which can be used at over 150,000 merchants in the US. You can easily purchase the exact amount you need at the register and have the gift card appear instantly within Cake Wallet without needing to wait for any confirmations. And you also get to save an average 2% on purchases. And Cake Pay only requires an email, nothing else. To check out Cake Wallet, please head over to cakewallet.com or search for Cake Wallet in the Google or Apple app stores. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. And now they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. If you are looking for a banking provider that understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. If you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also, today we have Compass Mining. And they're not just a sponsor. I'm a customer of Compass 2 and I'm back mining Bitcoin. And I've been mining for nearly a year now and I've mined over 0.75 Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. Now, anyone can start mining with Compass Mining and to help you, 
Compass have launched the Compass Score to help you make informed decisions about your next mining purchase. The score highlights how good each ASIC deal is based on a number of factors such as price, miner age, difficulty, hashing power, and the current Bitcoin price. Compass makes mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. Now, if you're interested in mining or you want to find out more, please head over to compassmining.io, which is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. Uh, let me, help, help us understand how yeah. uh, something like LBC works, because I've only yeah. ever been independent. Uh, you you know, have producers and researchers, but is there like a hierarchy? You talk about the like this is this is the agenda of shows we're going to be making this week, or can you just turn up with your mic and just present the next episode? So I did what I'm doing here. I just would go in and speak. Okay. But other people probably I don't know what other people did, but they probably prepared. They had notes and they would speak to the editor. But I would from the beginning I was very clear that like, I know what I want to say and I know how to do it. Right, so let me just do my job, and they did, and that's how we built up those listeners. Did they give you any soft warnings first? And we're not sure where you oh, go with this stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, and, and I told them to fuck off, <laughs> and that's what you know. They got rid of me. And talk us through it, like just overnight. So it was it was a bit of a stitch up. Um, they they published that tweet out of nowhere saying we're terminating the contract because it's coming to it's like he served us well, and the contract's coming to an end anyway. We're not renewing it, which was bullshit because that was in January. I had a contract. They know this. I had a contract. The existing contract they said is ending soon was all the way until the summer, right? And they'd already agreed a new contract, which had already been uh, in emails, agreed to and everything. It was waiting my signing, and I was away for Christmas. So it's all bullshit. They're lying. And they know they're lying. They all know they're lying. And they sit here in front of me, they know they're lying. Was so, were they under audience pressure? Was it audience pressure? Were they no. under uh, political it pressure? It wasn't audience pressure. Is it the culture? So they, they have the equivalent of radio bots that you see yeah, online. Yeah. That was happening, yeah? So there are people paid to call in to do the physical version of a bot, right? Mm. So that's all set up as well. But that's a different thing. That's PR companies again, basically. The problem wasn't that, though, because that doesn't lose them money. It's the bottom line, right? What happened was with lockdown, LBC had just bought... Uh, this is a nice inside scoop for you. LBC had just bought all the outdoor billboards. You see these outdoor billboards? Yeah, no. The advertising boards? They yeah. used to be called Clear Channel. Clear Channel, yeah. Now they're global. You see global underneath yeah. them, right? I know the guy that sold it to him. He had dinner with me. He's an Indian-British guy, right? After he sold it to them, he was a fan of my show. He sends me an email. He knows this. And he's like, hey, can we have dinner? I love your show. I just sold all these outdoor billboards to global. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. So we had an Indian together. We were in Mayfair. We were having Cobra beer, right, with our curry. So th this whole story is that they had taken a huge bank loan. This is also reported in the press, by the way. After lockdown, they reported this because their finances were in trouble. They had taken a huge bank loan to finance their acquisition of Clear Channel, yeah, so that they could, like all monopolistic practices, like all systems, accrue more power, yeah? They wanted radio and, out and outdoor advertising. You see the, how that would mm. be a self-fulfilling feedback loop, yeah? yeah? So they had taken a huge loan to get those outdoor billboards, and then lockdown hits. Who's advertising on outdoor billboards? <laughs> no one's outdoors. <laughs> Overnight, their biggest customer became government health warnings. Oh, okay. yeah? So suddenly, you've got a private broadcaster whose biggest customer is government. Again, that happened because of lockdown. No malicious planning. Yeah? It's just how systems work. So now you've got a company that needs to survive, and the only people paying it to survive, well, it's got these huge loans to pay off, is the government. So they're paying their loan back to the, to the bank because they've just acquired all these outdoor billboards. And the only adverts going up are stay indoors, stay safe, you know what I mean? So, the opposite of what you were saying. Exactly, right? So in between my show, we'd have these annoying adverts every 15 minutes. I'm saying ignore this bullshit, you know, don't get, don't get uh, turned into tyranny. And then suddenly the break comes, and it's like stay indoors, stay safe. So it was like, it was very really jarring. And so I think at some point, it became, like for the government, it became very inconvenient because they knew the show was being listened to. It was causing a stir. It was the only voice on a, a national platform that was challenging any of this bullshit, but it was challenging it in a very unapologetic way, very, very direct with all the facts and all the receipts and all the bullshit. You know, we'd put, for example, this thing you said about the cure being worse than the disease, mm. that's a question that we put to the government. We put, there was a freedom of information request specifically on that point. Has the government done an impact assessment, which is what it was called, on the cost of lockdown versus the benefits? And they had done an impact assessment. They never published it, right? Mm. Then the court orders the government to publish the thing 
they had a time limit. They never published it. And the reason they never published it is because it, it showed the obvious that actually the benefits don't outweigh the costs of this thing and more people are going to die because of it than from what you're trying to save. They had that impact assessment. So it was very inconvenient because then there's me every weekend reminding everyone that they've never published, for example, this piece of evidence that they mm -hmm. have and that a judge has ordered them to publish. It doesn't look good. You know, and so I reckon at, at one point somebody probably, and this is never going to be in any email, somebody over, over a drink probably said, listen, have a word. We're paying you a lot of money for these ads and your guys ruin it for us. It was, you know, I think the bottom line got affected, basically. So you think this came from someone in government rather than like the commercial director or whoever of LBC deciding that it was like, it, it didn't work? Well, they would have had a word with the commercial people, yeah. So you think it actually came yeah. from government? I mean, this didn't, doesn't work thing. It's bullshit. I mean, as you see, the, the show was, the, the audience was rising and rising, right? Mm. We know that. Oh, we, no, I, I, yeah. I totally believe yeah. your show word. I yeah. meant like the juxtaposition of yeah, the so show. Yeah, it would have been someone having a word with the commercial people, but, mm. then, but then ultimately, also because of speed at which it happened. Yeah. So I get back from Christmas. And as I say, we've got a contract till the summer and a new contract agreed. And the thing is, again, this can all be checked because my agents are J.K. Rowling's agents. They're not fucking with like little small-time people. They all know this. We've got emails, mm. right? So we're with the Blair Partnership, right? Which is the agency Rowling set up, actually. And Neil Blair runs it. He's a mate of mine as well. Um, and we've got all the emails. We're like, yep, agreed, contract, deal done. We've got this new contract and we're really happy with it. It's all in email, right? So I get back, though, and what happens is I tweeted, I shall not go quietly into the dark. And my point was, I'm, you, you know, I'm not going to stop talking about this, guys, just because you're, you're, you know, you're now signing me for a new contract. I'm not going to just like, you can't buy me and you can't threaten me you know it's just not going to happen you've got, you've got to be worse than Hosni Mubarak's torturers to, to try and cow me into saying something I don't want to say you know it's just not going to happen you can threaten me with what you want so I tweeted that I'm not going to go quietly into the dark I'm going to continue talking about this because actually most of it is going to come out after you guys are done with this bullshit that's when you're going to see all the costs of what you did the people dying of heart attacks the people with all these adverse events vaccine reactions and all that stuff is going to come out eventually and I've got to be there to tell those stories and I think that's when they realise okay this guy's in here for the long haul so that suddenly that tweet came out from them saying, we're, you know, thank you, but we're not going to renew the contract. It came with no warning whatsoever. They're going to get sued. Yeah. They're, they're being sued. So what, an uh, interesting question. To, oh, sorry, go on. No, no, I was no, just no, going to say, what was the culture like at LBC? Were they, was it a purely commercial decision, do you think, or were they against it anyway? Did you, oh, did you have oh, any, yeah, like, yeah, no, allies? They, they were all for, no, no, they were, most of them overwhelmingly were following the, the sheep narrative. Yeah. Most of them, yeah. Did you have any allies who back you? Or yeah, I mean, like, I don't want to, like, obviously, because something's still there, yeah, yeah, so you want to get people in trouble. But that's the, that's the issue when you start to censor speech in different ways or where people start to self-censor. I, I mean, that's one of the things I hate most is once you, when, when you have these mob mentalities and people start to self-censor, it's still a censorship. Yep. It's damaging. Do you think in some ways, though, like... Um, so, uh, I got divorced 10 years ago. Sorry, Con, it's my son's here. Um, in some ways, I mean, it was awful, but it also it changed my life in, in other ways for the better. I wouldn't be sat here. I'd still be working in advertising in London. I, you know, I've got this whole new life out there. Yeah. Do you think, you know, I, in some ways, in five years, you'll look back and think, that might have been one of the best things that ever happened to me? So I got divorced about 10 years ago, and Is I it? have a son as well. Yeah. And again, so I really understand why you've drawn that, because it does change you. That analogy yeah. is good, because you think it's the worst thing that happens to you at the time it happens, but then you grow. And it's not to say it was a good thing, because mm. you don't want to speak badly about your ex-wife like that either. It's just you grow into something else that you were, uh, that if not for that experience, by definition, you wouldn't have grown into. Yeah. So you have to accept it. And that the only way to, to look at experiences like that is to say, I am who I am now because of that. Yeah, good or bad, it's who I am. And I have to be ha happy and comfortable with who I am. So like divorce, this LBC thing, is, to be honest, I've It was grown, a divorce. Yeah, and I've grown into what this is. You're sitting in my new studio, we've got two shows coming out from here, and we've got a Substack newsletter that earns more than the two shows. Right, and it's uh, all under Radical Media, which is the group. Yeah, and you can't get cancelled on this one. It's my business, you know. And what the model, as you know, is you, you you build up your base, you build up your sponsorships, you build up your audience base, your listenership, and eventually someone comes along and says, "Here's two hundred million, come on our platform." You know, well, I, I would love that. Yeah, but that's Rogan, isn't it? So, <laughs> well, you know I mean? <laughs> if I get that, I, I will get my football team in the, in the football league. <laughs> yeah, but look at you. You got this, and you got a football team. Yeah, I and mean, that means you're you're doing something that's working for you. You know, was it worth it, Con? 
There you Not go. Not the divorce, obviously, it's your mother, yeah? <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, he, he loves I'm joking, his, I'm joking. He, 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 he loves his mum, but, like, he also enjoys <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. and, you know, yeah. you know, he loves the football as well. Yeah. I can see how much happier my dad is yeah. in this job. Yeah, like, yeah. So you should tell the mic what he said in case the audience. Yeah, come, come yeah. 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 I said I could. Uh, I can see how much happier my dad is doing what he's doing now. So yeah. that's what's worth it. Yeah, and we get to go to football every Saturday. Yeah, and see him smash them seven one. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. So it's just you know you become yeah. a you become you now, and we can all look back with regrets, but. You know, where's that going to get us, man? You know, we should be yeah. end up depressed. Well, listen, look, I, I love this. I appreciate yeah. your time. And, and I know we're going to bring it to an end at some point, but I do want to ask you about something because it's something I don't know enough about what's happened yeah. with Salman Rushdie. Yeah, we yeah. talked about it earlier. Yeah. Um, I'm aware of him, but from when I was young, I mean, I, I want to feel like, I want to say I was probably like a young teenager yeah. when I heard about the satanic verses and, yeah. and I, I didn't know anything about it. And then he's kind of largely passed me by until recently. Yeah. I'm obviously aware of him. And, you know, obviously aware that you know, uh, he had a fatwa. Is that how you refer to it, Pardon? Yep, the yeah. Iranian regime put a yeah. fatwa. No. And, and then... For me, it seemed like oh, that was something in the past. Yeah, you know, nothing it to worry was. about. All gone. It was. Yeah, you know, and somebody's jumped on stage and uh, stabbed him. I think I read twelve times. And one of the things I've actually like had an opinion that's even changed in the last few few days talking to Danny about it because I oh Jeremy as well. I, I, I think like my words were the lines as I absolutely support his right to free speech. I absolutely do. I also think sometimes maybe you know maybe just don't just there's certain things you can avoid saying you don't want to provoke hatred through you know, criticism of things that are quite important to people in terms of things like religion but then yeah. Danny came back and I've got a quote was it, was it his tweet? no it wasn't it was a quote from Salman Rushdie yeah he said respect for religion has become a code phrase meaning fear of religion religions like all the other ideas deserve criticism satire and yes our fearless disrespect which I think yeah. is brilliant yeah and that was like yeah no I, I see that point I mean I, I, I guess it's because I'm not the kind of person he's, he's going to create religious satire because it's just not me but like I've, I've gone round and round in circles on this but I, I know you're going to have looked at this and you're going to be able yeah, to educate yeah. me on what's happening what do you think I wrote a substack on it as well, so I do want okay. people to have a look at that. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. Um, so listen, I'm going to imagine you're on a Google Maps right now. Yeah, yep. I'm going to ask you to zoom out. Yeah, so pinch in on your Google Maps and go mm -hmm. zoom right out. So you're looking at the whole planet now. Yeah, and not just this question of Salman Rushdie for a second. Yeah, yeah, because it's important. So a question as sensitive as this, it requires a bit of a, a throat clearing before I give you my view on that, right? So the throat-clearing bit is this. As I'm sure you probably know, right, Danny, from your research, I'm pretty much the only Muslim in Britain you can find that's ever defended any of any of this stuff, right, publicly on TV, out Muslims and non-Muslims. You can't probably find even a non-Muslim that's done what I've done on the free speech stuff. When I stood as a Liberal Democrat candidate here in London, I even put out an image and said, Allahu Akbar minhu, I'm not, I said, God's greater than to be offended by this. I'm not offended. Let's just leave people alone because there was uh, a group that were wearing it on their T-shirts and we were in a BBC debate and the BBC censored it. And um, it was a time I just helped Tommy leave the EDL. So people were like, Majid, stand by your principles. And, and, I, you know, I, and then that led to a huge debate on Newsnight, still on YouTube, you can watch it. Mm -hmm. where I'm debating Maddie Hassan on this stuff, yeah? I'm like, listen, you've got to let people, you can be as offended as you want, but you can't, back to the point about, you can't force your offence onto people. Yeah, so I'm not saying you can't be offended. Be offended, that's your religion, yeah? Be offended, that's your prophet. You love him, be offended. But what you can't do is go around saying you... So, in other words, I have every right to be offended. I've got no right whatsoever to tell you that you can't offend me. They're two different things. I can be offended, I can't tell you you can't offend me, mm. yeah? Your right to offend me exists while my right to be offended exists, right? That's the problem there. You can't tell someone they can't offend you. Otherwise, we end up where nobody can speak. So that's throat clearing point number one. Um, like on the extremism stuff, you won't find anyone in this country that's done what I've done on this stuff, right? I hosted, and again, this is still online, everyone can check it. You mentioned LBC, look it up. Mm. I hosted Charlie Hebdo stuff on my show, right? No one's Prior done to the... After, right? After. Prior to Charlie Hebdo is when I put that cartoon up. That's when I was with the Lib Dems. It became a huge scandal. There was Were you multiple, targeted? multiple death threats. Nick Clegg had to get involved as the Deputy Prime Minister to try and back everyone off. That's all in the news. You can look right. it up, yeah? Look up Lib Dem candidate. Imagine, I was Nick Clegg, cartoon. It's all there. Nick Clegg had to intervene in the national debate to try and calm everyone down. This is before Charlie Hebdo. Can you imagine how controversial it was? Yeah. Right? But I did it on a point of principle to say, this needs to be shown to people that a Muslim can also say, I'm not offended, yeah? 
of course, a whole bunch of people were offended at me. So that's all throat clearing. That's not my actual response to the Salman Rushdie case. I say all of that so that people take my response in the best of faith. Yeah, mm-hmm. that I'm the one that has defended your right to do all of this. And I say, not forget Muslim, not, I'm the only one that's done it out of all communities, yeah? When it comes to actually posting this stuff and having TV debates and hosting the Charlie Hebdo stuff after, there was one one of the uh, staff survived the attack. She was on yeah, my show. One. Yeah, she was on my show, Yasmin, right? You can look it up, it's on the LBC website. So I've done all of that, yeah? Now I'm going to say, this attack was a attempted political assassination that had nothing to do with all this debate we're talking about. Right. So this free speech debate, as important as it is, it's the wrong framework to look at what's happening right now with Salman Rushdie. Because what's happened is, if you remember in the news, John Bolton was saying that the Iranians were trying to assassinate him. Yep. Yeah? Before that, the Saudis said, if Iran develops a nuke, we're going to develop a nuke. Right? The Trump raider in Mar-a-Lago, it just turns out White House staffers reported they were looking for Iranian nuclear papers. When I say we're looking for nuclear stuff, the nuclear documents, it was related to the Iranian nuclear documents. This is all related to the Iran nuclear deal. You've got a problem now, and that is, does Iran get a nuclear bomb? Pakistan has one. Israel has one, though it's a policy of plausible deniability. Everyone that looks at the Middle East knows Israel's always had one. Even Israel doesn't deny it. They just say, we're not going to comment, right? Saudi doesn't have one. And there's a civil war going on right now between Saudi and Iran in the Middle East. Yemen is yeah. the battleground, yeah? And that's what the civil war in Yemen is about. Saudi interference. They're bomb carpet bombing the whole place. There's mm-hmm. like child starvation going on there. That's all about this struggle in the Middle East about who's going to be the reigning supreme power. Is it Iran or Saudi Arabia? They're two competing interests, and Israel's on the other side. So this nuclear deal, Saudi threatened to develop their own bomb if Iran does. The John Bolton, the reports of John Bolton being attempted to be assassinated by an, um, uh, an Iranian Revolutionary Guard operative, that's all linked to this. And the Trump raid, it's now being reported there were the nuclear papers that were being searched out were related to the Iran deal. Yeah, There's an Iranian female activist called uh, Masih Ali Najad. Uh, she, on the same day, had somebody with a loaded uh, automatic rifle outside her house, basically threatening her. And I think I've interviewed her. Yeah, you may have done. And then that guy was, yeah, yeah, you may have done. And that guy was arrested on the same day Rushdie got attacked. So you put, you look at what you zoom, this was a zoom out. Right? Yeah. And you look at all of this and you realize what this was was an attempted political assassination by competing regimes over the Iran nuclear deal. And there are a whole bunch of people that may not want that to happen and scupper the deal. But but this is a thesis. It's a thesis. So yeah. the, no, but the thing is, the other one isn't even a thesis. This was not related to free speech. Yeah. The other one isn't even a thesis. It's a relevant principle that we all believe in, but that's not what happened here. This guy was an Iranian operative. His fake passport was, the name he's using, his is all linked to the IRGC. The, even the name they've given is linked to one of the commanders. Oh, this is what you said about Eric Weinstein said, if you search by his Muslim name, yeah. you find... Well, that, that was slightly different, but on his name on the passport was that. But why, so why was Rushdie targeted? Because, uh, so the Iranian regime, so think about the fatwa yeah, that you mentioned, yeah. yeah? So Khomeini was the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Khomeini put a fatwa on Rushdie in the 80s. He was the Ayatollah. Yeah. Yeah. And the founder. Yeah. So he was a supreme commander, but also the founder. That's why the fatwa sticks. Right. Because he wasn't just any old Ayatollah. Yeah. There's been two more after him. So what happens is Khomeini puts his fatwa on. Yeah. He dies. Khatami comes along. The next dude says, we're going to suspend the, we're going to not suspend it. We're going to cancel the fatwa. We're, we're going to try and open up to the world. Yeah? yeah. This is in the 90s when everyone was like, when Tony Blair's in a tent with Gaddafi in the desert. Yeah. Everyone's trying to get along. So he goes, we're going to get rid of the fatwa. We've got to you know, get along with it. So he gets rid of it. Khamenei comes along, next dude, and says, you know what? We're going to reinstall the fatwa. So he reinstalls it, and then he says, you know what, we're going to temporarily suspend it, as opposed to cancel it. So the status of the fatwa right now is that it's suspended, not cancelled. Yeah. But then there was another guy in Iran, a big cleric, who says, while this fatwa is suspended, I'm going to raise the bounty on it. So he raised it up to 33 million or some figure around there. Yeah. So the, the fatwa was in this kind of like, it is on and it's not on state. Yeah. Right. So there's a higher bounty, but officially it's suspended. Now, back to your question about why Rushdie. So when you know that history, you know that any attack on Rushdie is immediately going to be linked to blaming Iran because Iran is complicit in the abuse of this word fatwa. Because by the way, in the religion, fatwa doesn't mean death sentence. 
this is another thing that really winds Muslims up, yeah? Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's always going to be people that will weaponize terms, yeah? All fatwa means is religious ruling. That's all it means. I can give you a fatwa now about whether it's allowed for you to drink that water in Islamic law. Like, literally, that's just what it means, religious mm -hmm. ruling, yeah? Is it allowed for us to be sitting, uh, I don't know, is beer allowed? What about non-alcoholic beer? Muslims aren't allowed alcohol, but non-alcoholic beer, is that allowed? The answer to that would be a fatwa. Right, okay. Yeah? So so it's important for your audience to understand as well that the term's been weaponized. The problem is because the Muslims look like terrorists. When actually in their everyday conversation, they will be talking about what is the Sheikh's fatwa on can I walk into this building in this, you know, in this state of cleanliness when it's a mosque, should I have abolition? These are all fatwas you give, they're religious rulings. So so the, the problem is the Iranian regime has been obviously it's 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 guilty itself in weaponizing these terms for its political objectives. So they called this a fatwa that the, the you can see the link though, because it's a religious ruling that Salman Rushdie needs to die. So that's why the word yeah. fatwa came along. So anyone that attacks Salman Rushdie, because of the history of this fatwa, immediately Iran's going to get blamed. So Senator Marco Rubio, the minute that happened, puts out a tweet and says, it's time to call off the Iran nuclear deal. So that's why Salman Rushdie, because the thing is, whoever wants to, to scupper the nuclear deal will know that you attack Rushdie and Iran gets blamed. And people like Senator Marco Rubio will come along and say, we're going to cancel the Iran nuclear deal. So the real question is, who doesn't want this deal to go ahead? This was an attempted political assassination. I'm going to say one more thing now. It is, because of the state of the world we're in, it's not the first attempted political assassination. It's the only one the algorithm has actually managed to find you about. But before that, there was, let's not forget Shinzo Abe in, in Japan, right? He's just been assassinated, right? So mm -hmm. there was a attempted thing on, on John Bolton, the former national security advisor for Trump. He's saying the Iranian regime were trying to assassinate me. We're in a time, let's just remember, the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated, which is what kicked off the World War, right? World so, yeah. so, so we're in a time of that again, right? So mm. basically it starts with... Um, uh, it starts with proxy conflicts, then it escalates, and then it, 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 you end up with a clampdown on your own citizens from fear of war, which is what COVID was really about, because it was concerned about bioweapons, right? And then you end up with assassinations, and then one of, one day, one of these assassinations Triggers. is going to trigger a war, right? And that's where the dangerous situation we're in. So, wasn't, wasn't there a nuclear scientist assassinated Yes, ago. in Iran. As in well. Iran, yeah. yeah. So, so these are also, and, and remember, Qasim Soleimani, the commander of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, was assassinated by Trump. Yes. Right? Khashoggi actually was, assassinated. That's right. Khashoggi was assassinated and chopped into pieces by uh, King Salman of Saudi Arabia in the Turkish embassy, in the Saudi embassy in Turkey, right? So these are all political assassinations been going on. People, the algorithm will only bring you the one that everyone's upset about, yeah? yeah. But they're, they're going on this. That's why I say zoom out a bit, yeah? Mm. And so what's going on is we're in a period where, where Iran is allied with China. That's basically the situation. Russia, Iran, and China is on the one end, and you've got the rest on the other end. And uh, that's the divide. And so there's reciprocal assassinations going on right now. Somebody doesn't want... The, and I'm not even passing judgment on the Iran nuclear deal as to whether it's good or bad for the world. I mean, if you ask me, I mean, all the problem is war in the first place, yeah? But somebody doesn't want that deal to go ahead. And that's what this particular incident is about. Because you're right, it's been there for... Since the 80s, mm. this has been it's going on to the point where Salman Rushdie felt it's over, which is why he was on that stage without the top you know, security he used to he, have. He still had two security there, didn't he? I don't know. I think there, sure. there was police there. Police. So but, who, who yeah. do you think is behind this attack then? Well, look, so whoever doesn't... What, the problem, the reason I'm hesitating that this now is speculation, right? Mm -hmm. This part. Because well, you can make an argument that the Saudis don't want it to go ahead. You can make an argument that Iran themselves don't want it to go ahead. You can make an argument that the US doesn't want it to go ahead. So the, that's, that's right. And the reason is because in Iran, there are factions. The hardline factions who don't want peace with the West and then the softer ones who do. So it could have been Iran doesn't want it because they hate the West and don't want peace. Yeah, China is allied with Iran. Israel definitely doesn't want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. Right? So Saudi Arabia doesn't want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. So who? who I mean, like, basically, what we know is this... The effect of this, it will be to damage the, the nuclear negotiations. But there's so many people that want them damaged. Beyond that, it's an intelligence operation to find out who's behind it. Gosh. You know? Well, man, listen, look, uh, 
wanted to, wanted to do this for a long time and uh, fascinating as expected. Uh, thank you. Uh, appreciate thanks it. Thanks for coming down no, from Bedford. Any you know, time. Thank you. I hope we can get it. I flew in for this, by the way, from you, Tennessee. So did you actually feel better? Yeah. Well, because I had to. So I, I, I was going to extend the trip. My my in laws were like, stay until uh, Monday. And I said, well, you know, I, because we were two days late going out. Yeah. I said, well, I could do, but I promised Pete I'd be here for my this, this interview. We should have put it back a couple no, of no, days. No, 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 but that's what I'm saying. You came, I said to yeah. him, I said to him, he's coming all the way from Bedford, so I've got to at least be there. You know? Were you in Nashville in Tennessee? Yeah. yeah no, no, um, oh. Knoxville. Oh, we married okay. in Nashville. I love yeah, Nashville. But they're from Knoxville, so, but Nashville's beautiful. Nashville's become my favorite place in the US. Mate, if I was going to buy anywhere, I'd buy there. Yeah, Danny, you uh, loved yeah, it, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah That's where we're from. The whole, that side of family is Tennessee, yeah. Nashville, Knoxville, Carthage. Are you out there a lot? Yeah. I mean, that's my son was born there. I got married there. I mean, he's born American. And that's where his grandparents are, you know? And next time in Nashville. Yeah, well, you know, because I'm there two yeah. or three times a year. But look, I appreciate it. I've wanted to do it for a long time. I'm going to want to do it again. Six months to a year, we'll, we'll hit Absolutely. you up and do it again. Yeah, as I say, we're, we're, and the other, oh, you're always welcome on. Uh, I think the kind of chat we're having, you can, it's Warrior Creed, would probably be more, more our style. Maybe. Because Radical's a very long, serious interview format, you know? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not always the best guest. I prefer yeah. to ask the questions, but maybe one day. Yeah. But give a shout out to all your platforms, tell people where to go. Did you just diss me? No, oh, no I diss me. Maybe one day. Imagine you don't want it. Do I like being a guest? No. I hate being a guest. Yes. But, um, I'm sure we can bring it out. What, what kind of music did you grow up listening to? Heavy metal. Yeah. You can do that. And he, I, so I, do you remember the Public Enemy Anthrax co co uh, of course, Bring the Noise. Yeah? Yeah. That's right. And do you remember the Ice-T um, Body uh, Count? Body Count. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and yeah. I remember actually the um, the soundtrack to, oh, what was it, Judgment Night. It was yeah. an entire album of uh, hip-hop and metal bands. Uh, yeah. Faith No More did a track with Booyah Tribe. Yeah. The, the anti-establishment metal bands, basically. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, that, yeah. that was me. I mean, I, I nearly wore a Metallica shirt this morning, yeah. but then I didn't. But yeah, yeah no, I'm, I still listen to the same music I listened to as a teenager, which is basically heavy metal and a bit of hip-hop. I tried to listen some of his drill stuff, but I'm yeah. just not cool enough. Do you see what I did there, Danny? See, look, he's talking. Yeah, yeah. So you, you talked to me about football, yeah. heavy metal. Yeah, but it's not a political show. It's okay. literally about fitness, health, wellness, lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not that fair, but yeah. the last thing we just did actually. So, so let me end with this because yeah. it's, it's important and it's also very interesting. You know Malcolm X, right? Yeah. What a lot of people don't know is that he had an eldest grandson, also called Malcolm, called Malcolm Shabazz, which was Malcolm's name after he came back from the pilgrimage, Al Haj Malik Al Shabazz when he got killed. Because when Malcolm stopped being like all white people are the devil, he went on Hajj to Saudi Arabia and he came back, he said, I'm going to work with everyone to try and bring unity. And that's when he got assassinated. His eldest grandson is called Malcolm Shabazz. So our last Warrior Creed uh, podcast was about him because he basically was incarcerated at the age of 12 because Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's wife, her house got burnt down. Now, no one knows she died in the fire. No one knows if it was black ops, whatever, but they pinned the blame on the 12-year-old kid because he was in the house. They said, you must have set fire to the house. So they threw him in jail. He's Malcolm X's actual grandson, yeah? So he was incarcerated from the age of 12 through the criminal justice system. It's horrible, this story, oh. right? And his grandmother's just died, you know? So he's been raised in the prison system as a 12-year-old. So he obviously went down the wrong way. Obviously, what 12-year-old kid wouldn't after such circumstances, you know what I mean? So in the end, he's trying to fix himself up. He also went to pilgrimage like his, um, like his grandfather, and he, you know, he started fixing himself up. He got a sponsorship to study in Iran. He got a, a presidential visa to go and study out there um, as part of his Muslim studies and stuff. And he was, uh, yeah, he's in, you know, African-American in the US. Anyway, he gets arrested again. Um, jaywalking, like literally actually jaywalking. They arrest him. They were harassing him all his life. And he put out this blog. And he said, the FBI keep harassing me. And he's like, he says, I think they're trying to, I'm going to get assassinated. Like the character assassination comes before the physical assassination. That's literally a line in his blog post that he wrote, yeah? yeah? And then one day, he goes to Mexico City, and, and the story is, who knows what happened, but the story that's being told is that he gets a bar tab for $1,200. And he's like, what? I had a drink. What do you mean $1,200? So he gets into a dispute over the bar tab in a bar where the mariachi perform, which is, is yeah. yeah. So the cartel's mariachi, right? Mm -hmm. The performers. They're, you, they're not cartel, but they're hired by the cartel for, for the performance of the music. So, so um, basically, he gets beaten to death. 
Jesus. and killed in Mexico City. And it's very, very, very suspicious. And if you've seen Who Killed Malcolm X on, on Netflix, the documentary, you should watch it mm -hmm. if you haven't, because the whole thing was a setup. It's all come out now. That yep. New York police set up Malcolm X. And he'd see, the grandson had written his blog saying, I'm being harassed by the FBI. And then he gets killed in, in Mexico City. Very suspicious circumstances. It's a mystery at the moment as to what happened. Of course, you can imagine the family's had a lot of trauma. So because I met him, he attended one of my talks in... Um, in Doha, I was doing a debate for the BBC Doha debates under Sim Sebastian's stewardship. And he was in the audience. And then another person in the audience who became a friend of mine as well called Rajat basically met him there. She's a Dutch Moroccan singer. And then she made some music about him, collaborated with him on music and with Tupac's producer. So we were getting that story on, on Warrior Creed. And it's, so it's, just, it's very, it's not, it's not like an interview. It's more like, you know, basically interesting stuff that we like to talk about. Well, I've got a few things. Some of them I'll tell you about when my son's not around that we can talk about as Absolutely. well. But, uh, yeah. I love this. Uh, just tell people where to follow all the platforms. Right, so so basically uh, on Substack, it's my Majin Nawaz on Substack um, called The Radical Dispatch. On my Getter profile at Majin Nawaz is Warrior Creed. It's exclusive to Getter every Friday at 11 a.m. EST, 4 p.m. UK. And then I've got a sponsorship with Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, -E, where The Radical Show is on Odyssey once a week and we release episodes every Sunday. All right, well, we'll see that all in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love man. this. A pleasure. Yeah, do this soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. I hope you enjoyed that interview and also a massive thanks to Majid for having us down in London and allowing us to use his studio, also in telling us his full backstory, which is pretty crazy. This is a show I've wanted to make for quite a while now and next time we are in the UK making a bunch of shows, I will definitely be asking Majid to come back on the show and record a part two. He has so much to offer, so many...